sometimes when you start a new language, you bring your preconception from the language you're coming in. When I started with Go, I wrote a lot of Python in Go. And it worked and compiled, but it wasn't Go. I think these quizzes also help you break these misconceptions or preconceptions and say, no, we do it differently here. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cockroach Labs, the makers of CockroachDB, the most highly evolved database on the planet. With CockroachDB, you can scale fast, survive anything, and thrive everywhere. It's open source, Postgres wire compatible, and Kubernetes friendly, which means you can launch and run it anywhere. For those who need more, you can build and scale fast with Cockroach Cloud, which is CockroachDB hosted as a service. It's the simplest way to deploy CockroachDB and is available instantly on AWS and Google Cloud. With Cockroach Cloud, a team of world-class SREs maintains and manages your database infrastructure so you can focus less on ops and more on code. Get started for free with a 30-day free trial or try their new forever free tier that's super generous. Head to cockroachlabs.com slash changelog to learn more. Again, cockroachlabs.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live each and every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe now at youtube.com slash changelog so you're notified of when we go live. And don't forget to hop into the Gophers Slack and the Go Time FM channel. That's where all the chatter happens. If this is your first time listening, subscribe now at gotime.fm. Hey, let's get right into it, shall we? Here we go. Hi everyone, good evening, morning, afternoon, wherever you're joining from. Today we have people joining from all over the place, so we're definitely celebrating all hours of the day. And this episode is here to talk about Go Code Pop Quizzes. And we have lots of interesting guests from, it's really fun to say from around the world, but this is really, really happening now. So we have Miki joining from Israel. What time is it for you, Miki? Hello, it's 11... 10 p.m. Cool. Did you have coffee recently? <laughs> uh, no, but I'm good. That's good. It's probably better not to have coffee so close to sleep. <laughs> oh, it, it doesn't affect me. I can drink a cup of coffee and go right away to sleep. Crazy. Um, we have Dave joining us from Sydney. Dave, good morning. Good morning. Hello. You're it already is, in the yep. future. Yep. It's about 10 past six in the morning here. So we're just starting our day. And, and you're in tomorrow. <laughs> you, you probably never heard that. Sorry. I, I do get excited by that. I don't have too many <laughs> colleagues in Australia. I'm joining from Berlin here. It's 10 p.m. John, what time is it for you? It is 4 p.m. Well, 4.10, but yeah, 4 p.m. I'm on the East Coast of the U.S., so New York time, essentially. Dave, I imagine your uh, teammates who aren't in Australia don't love that. Like, Natalie's loving that you're in a different day, but anybody trying to schedule a meeting <laughs> with you is like, this is annoying. Yeah, if you're on the East Coast, it's not great to talk to Australians, especially in kind of like this set of time zones. It's okay to the West Coast, like to California and Seattle, especially in the winter for Americans. But yeah, right now it's not super awesome. When Natalie was telling me the time for this, I was like trying to confirm three times because I'm like, <laughs> all right, 
Because she told me your date and time at first, and I'm like, all right, I got to make sure I have this right here because I'm not sure. It just it makes me like double check everything. Yeah, I think throughout this uh, remote year, I don't know if I had a meeting where each person came from a different time zone. There was groups of people in different time zones, yeah. or everybody somewhere, and I'm here. Yeah. When you work in big international companies, that happens a lot. All these time zones and finding the right time for a meeting is so challenging. In Israel, also, the weekend is different. So, less opportunities to actually meet people. Yeah, somebody spotted your dog, John. <laughs> yes, that is a dog behind me. I'm hoping my dog is quiet. If you see me, like, frantically hitting the mute button, that's what's going on. <laughs> so, our quick introduction round. Dave, you are a gopher working at GitHub. Yes, I've been at GitHub for just over a year now. GitHub's a very large place. Like, it's a very big service. A lot of the back-end stuff is written in Go. A lot of things that you interact with daily that aren't very obvious above the waterline. For example, I maintain the service that manages Git commit signing. Like whenever you see a, a thing that is verified on GitHub, part of that traffic went to my service to actually check, are your commits verified? So we have a lot of gophers at perhaps some, some on the call here, a lot of gophers at GitHub, again, doing a lot of, a lot of backendy things. Cool. And you also are a master of pop quizzes in Go. You're doing so many of those on Twitter and conferences, uh, other places. Yeah, the last one got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing that is most pleasing is that I'm not the only one who's doing them. Like that's like the, you know, you're onto a winner when other people want to get into the game. They're inspired to like take and enhance and take the idea further. This is super exciting. Mickey, you describe yourself as an old dog that learns new tricks from time to time. Exactly. Does that include also pop quizzes? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I like quizzes in general, and turning them into a, a tool of teaching and several books, it's, uh, it's something new that I picked up. I am old in technology, like I'm 51, which is ancient, I think. Uh, started when I was 16, I think, somewhere around that, and professionally 25 years, so... And I always try to learn. That's what survives me still now. That's really cool. John, you're on mute. Does it mean the dog is barking now? I wanted to ask you about teaching and your thoughts about pop quizzes. No, he's not barking. I mean, I like pop quizzes. It's kind of interesting because a lot of the ones I see on, which we'll probably get into, tend to be showing something that's very unique about the language, which is always fun to see like how many people who think they're experts in something really understand what's going to happen in some really obscure case. And I think, Dave, you've definitely gotten, I think, everybody at some point in time. I, I don't think it's possible <laughs> that anybody's answered them all. I'm honestly curious if you knew the answer to all of them before you ran them. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And that's kind of, I'm sure we'll get into this, but like, like if you're looking for the, what's the inspiration? It's usually when I was like, well, I didn't know that, or I wasn't sure. Or then naturally from that follows, well, I wonder if anybody else knows this. Yeah, for me, it's usually bugs that I make. And then I start wondering why. Why did this happen? I didn't expect that. And then you try to figure it out. And then if you move it to teaching and you try to distill it, then you hit this point where you get a really short example that people like and it's really confusing. So it sounds like you're not hunting after topics, but you just come across things and then develop that into something interesting. Oh, I'm really good at writing bugs. So uh, <laughs> I have a lot of opportunities to learn from them. I'm not particular. I think sometimes it's interesting for me to say, like, what happens? A lot of times students ask, you know, the weirdest questions about what will happen if we do this and 
you know, I never done that. And then you try it out and, oh, that's interesting. It's a lot coming from, from my students as well. Students are always really fun because like when they're not programmers, they don't think about things the same way somebody who's been programming for a while thinks. Yes. And when they like ask those questions, it's always like enlightening. You're like, oh, maybe I should like talk to people who aren't programs more like programmers more often to get their insights as to what happens. <laughs> I think a lot of the time, like as technologists or especially as like the person that writes the program or that works very closely in the area, you can kind of develop blinders or blinkers that they kind of protect you or guide you down like a reasonable, sensible path. I saw a, a tweet on Twitter a couple of days ago of it's just kind of like a mean thing of a user trying trying your product for the first time and it's like, it's a the kind of cartoon guy trying to drink water out of a glass. And he starts <laughs> yeah. by licking the bottom of the glass and then yeah. kind of tacking it with his chin, things like that. But the point is kind of made, like we know the right way to do something. So it seems unnatural to kind of be like, to kind of try and do it the wrong way. But yet if you introduce that situation to somebody new, they have no guidance, they have no idea how to do it. And if you think back to like very early in when computing was uh, like, like when kind of desktop computing, I think back to kind of like the eighties and nineties when I was growing up, there was a big push to do a thing called desktop skills or typing skills, which was basically, do you know how to use Microsoft word? Because people were so scared of like they could break a computer. Like if you type the wrong thing, you could break your computer. I'm sure Mickey, like you would know from teaching your students, like the first thing they'd be worried about is like, if I make a syntax error, like, is that going to break it? Like the computer going to be somehow broken? Like the first syntax error and it's broken completely. And the one of the hardest things about teaching is to teach people it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to like, yes. if the program doesn't compile, that's not a big deal. Congratulations, we just get to fix it. Nothing is terribly broken or ruined. But that was very much a thing of kind of introducing computers to people starting high school and primary school here in Australia just so that they would be more familiar with them. Again, it's something we take for granted that the children... I remember someone telling me that their young child tried to tap on the television screen, <laughs> so, which, yeah. which seems perfectly reasonable because every other screen they'd ever seen you could tap on. So why couldn't you tap on the TV? And then compare that to maybe yourself or, or your parents who just don't really want to use a computer because they're worried they could break it. So the idea about like familiarizing people and familiarizing them saying it's okay to fail or make mistakes is kind of like the first hurdle of teaching anything. Yeah. I'm still afraid to break my computer every time I use it, but I think I'm getting better at it. And I totally agree that this fear, and this is what's fun about programming, is that you can make mistakes as much as you want. And most of the time, the cost of error is almost nothing. So you just can play around with it. And Go is great language for that. Because of this fast cycle of go run and try it out and go run again, it's really easy to just try things out. Like your quizzes, I just copy and paste from Twitter and do a go run and see, oh, I got it wrong again. But it's really easy to, to try it out. There's a joke that computers are the thing in history that allows you to make mistakes the fastest with the exception of tequila and handguns. So um, you should use that and actually uh, learn from that mistakes. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, um, David, you said that to include in the learning process that you should be making mistakes, you should be breaking things. That's uh, definitely not obvious and uh, can open a whole discussion on if you use a grading system, yeah. do you encourage that yeah. versus if you do things like projects? It's true, not just for teaching, by the way. A lot of companies also, if you have an atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes, these companies usually do better than people who are always mm -hmm. worried about what will happen if I do something wrong. Uh, so I totally agree with that. Yeah. 
I wonder if a pop quiz is a quick way of encouraging that because you basically yes. tell people, take a guess, try. You, you might get it wrong, but you do encourage them to do that. I'd say pop quizzes help because like every pop quiz, you can just run it. Like there's no like big downside of like, oh, I got this wrong and the whole world's going to know. Like even if you get it wrong, you're like usually within a, a lot of people have already gotten it wrong. So you're not like the only one getting it wrong. <laughs> And then on top of that, you can go run it and be like, oh, now I understand, like, or I see what's going on. You might not understand why that's happening. So I probably need to give a little bit of history. So you asked Natalie, where do some of these ideas come from? And a lot of them come from bugs or mistakes that I didn't understand or teaching opportunities. But the original idea, like or the original genius for this was I was reading the Go spec. And this makes me sound like the giantest nerd ever because <laughs> I read the spec a lot. <laughs> a lot of the quizzes come from it. So I am a giant nerd. <laughs> and just in reading through that, I was like, oh, copy, the built-in copy operation, the copy function returns a number. Well, I guess that makes sense. Like I have a copy returns how many bytes of copy. So that makes sense. But like, this is going back so early in the days ago, before we had a pen, we actually had to use copy to like grow and make new slices. Like you, everyone would write their own append function. And I mean, this is going back into the prehistoric days of Go. So back then copy was used a lot more, but now now that we have a pen, it's used very infrequently, except if you're doing like slice tricks. And so I thought, well, like most of the time I barely remember copies there. I wonder how many people also remember that it returns a number. And so I thought, well, how could I kind of show this to people or remind people about this in, in a way that kind of was, would give them a laugh. And so that was the idea for the quiz. And the other piece, which was, it used to be much harder, but now thankfully tweets are longer, was I set myself the challenge because I like this idea of, um, Richie has this great talk on constraints and to, to not spoil the whole thing, it says that, you know, composers when they're starting out will set themselves a bunch of constraints, like I'm only going to use this key or I'm going to make this, build this around a particular instrument. Why? Or just to give themselves limitations. Otherwise you just have this impossible blank canvas. So rather than just linking to the, to the playground, all the code and a runnable sample. I said, well, it has to fit in a tweet. And that usually involved quite a lot of brutalism to the syntax and kind of like removing all the white space to make it fit in the tweet. But that was the kind of the constraint. Can you ask this question in a way that fits in a tweet? And along the way, tweets got a little bit bigger. We've got quizzes, the questionnaire things, which kind of make it very easy and also don't count against your word count, which is great to give a set of predefined answers. But that was kind of like the genius for, for that. And the last thing about the quiz, I remember I had a conversation over Twitter with Peter Bergon. I think I tweeted once, you know, Golang top tip, something like that. And he said, why is it a top tip? I said, well, because it was a pro tip, not everyone would be able to use it. The idea of making a pop quiz is like, don't make it about, it's only for experts or like, like make it, anyone can try. So it's kind of like, that's the, if you want to like think of the ground rules for how to do a, a Twitter Golang pop quiz, those are like have to fit in a tweet. The other reason about not using the playground is, well, it kind of makes it too easy to get the answer. Like you go to that playground link and instead of having to think, you could just like push the run button and it'll tell you the answer. So every now and occasionally people are like, oh, why can't you post a link to the playground? Or, you know, I need a bot to automatically copy this into the playground. Like, well, if you did that, like where would the challenge be? That's kind of like the ground rules for how this whole shebang started. So does that mean that if we're using screenshots of code, we're cheating? I don't claim proprietary over this. I don't claim that, like, this is my idea. That's certainly not. The actual idea for this came from 20 years ago. There was a wonderful book by Josh Block called Java Puzzlers. It's one of my favorites, and Mickey knows this story. It was my favorite because it had, like, 50 questions of, like, 
in the kind of classic pop quiz style, what does this program print or does this program compile? Like very simple, short programs. And then a much larger description afterwards, which said, well, actually, no, and this might be surprising because, and then gave the explanation. And for me, it wasn't so much about like getting 50 out of 50 on those quizzes. It was about what you learn from like, whoa, that was surprising. Why is that? And so the pop quiz format has like mutated from just uh, short tweets. Um, I'll give you some examples. At the London Gophers, they have a question for the audience between between the talks. So at the end of the talk, they put a slide up while people are on break and you come back and you, I think they either do like a show of hands and then the person that asked the question like has to explain, well, if you thought that, here's the answer and here's why. Like, like the important part is giving the explanation. I know that I've seen some examples that at some of the meetups that the Japanese gophers have, 1010 had three questions that they asked in their after party. And again, some are kind of uh, educational, others are just downright mean. So I've taken some of the ones that some of the pop quizzes that I like the most, and I've kind of redid them into 20 minute presentation, because it was a good thing to bring to meetups if I was traveling or something like that. Like it's always a good party filler to have, have some questions for the audience to like, to warm people up. And in that format, kind of, you can have a slide with the question, you can have a slide with the answer. So it's not like a fixed thing. It's not like there's a way to do it right or wrongly. To me, the value is always not to like be true and strict to the form. It's to the bit that comes after asking that question and saying, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that answer. Why is that? And that's probably one thing that the Twitter form lacks, partially because like that was yesterday's tweet, lose interest in it. And I kind of do recognize that I'd leave the, why is the answer three, for example, as a kind of like, oh, well, you have to go and figure that out yourself. Perhaps it could be more, more effective if I did have more kind of follow through. But generally these, the kind of genius for asking a question comes quite spontaneously. And so I'm like, that'll fit in a tweet. I can make that into a, into a pop quiz. <laughs> so on a related note, I guess, when you're making these quizzes, you said like it kind of being an unexpected answer is part of the appeal is like, it catches people off guard. It's something new that they're going to learn. Do you ever worry that you post so many of those that people just expect the unexpected with you? I mean, granted, they should be learning regardless. So it's useful. But I don't know if like, do you ever try to like throw ones in that are more obvious just to see if people are actually on like paying attention? Yeah. If there is an aspect that people feel that like they're cruel or unfair or attempting to catch people, that's a personal failing on me, not on the idea of encouraging people to learn a subject more deeply through asking simple questions. That's definitely on me. To not take all of the blame, Twitter lets you have four answers. So generally you put a ringer in there. I do try to make them not too unfair. Like there's... But in saying that, almost always, like if you give doesn't compile or panics at runtime, some 10, 15% of people will click on it. Maybe because they think, well, actually that's invalid syntax or something like that. There was a pop quiz a couple of weeks ago when I found out that there's a hexadecimal form of floating point literals. I'm sure it has the same utility as complex numbers have in Go. I'm sure I'm going to get some hate mail for that. But <laughs> there is a hexadecimal form of, so not... 1.5 e to the minus 2. It's some hexadecimal form. And of course, when it's hexadecimal, you can't use e because e is part of the character set for hex. So you have to use p. So it just looks like line noise. And so when I asked that question, it probably is quite reasonable to make one of the answers, well, this doesn't compile because it's line noise. It's, that's like not valid syntax. But perhaps one of the failings of the Twitter quiz thing is that you don't get to have another go. You click one answer and you can't ever change your mind. But hopefully, 
people say, well, why would you ask a question where it clearly looks like line noise on the page? And one of the answers is doesn't compile. Like, isn't that too easy? Like, so perhaps there's a little bit of that in structuring the question. I'll give you another example. My friend Tenten from Japan, one of the pop quizzes he wrote for his meetup, it was two pages worth of code and you needed to trace a variable from a function and then it went into a map and then he looked up the key, but it was by the wrong value. So you were getting a zero value out of the map and you returned that from a function, but actually used the named return. It actually turned out that none of that mattered because he deliberately missed the space in the go embed declaration to make the quiz as impossible as possible. And I'll finally going to put it in the show notes. It actually included itself. So used go embed to embed the source code itself and then use the length of the source code as an input to the function and then all of this. And I went through all the work of trying to figure out what would this return, it eventually boils down to true or false. The reality is that like, that's not really a quiz, that's kind of like just doing the, the algorithm longhand. Like if you look further and you ask, why is someone asking this question? It's probably because there is a, a more straightforward answer. And the straightforward answer was that he'd missed off, he deliberately left the space out of go embed so that declaration didn't do anything. And so the length of the file was pointless because you never embedded the file. So I think part of asking the question might seem a little bit unfair, but you have to think, well, what is the, like, it's usually not the obvious answer. I'll take today's quiz. For example, what is the length of the string composed of the rune minus one? And the answer is one, two, and three. Turns out the answer is three for all the people who are still working it out. And the reason it's three is because in the spec, how I came across this was when you're iterating over a string, and we know that strings are made up of UTF encoded characters, you iterate over it, not byte by byte, but rune by rune. And so you can come into a situation where you have invalid UTF-8. In that case, the spec clearly says that Go will return this called the broken rune or something like that. It's Unicode FFFD. So the only thing you need to remember about that is to encode 16 bits in Unicode, you actually need three characters. So one of the answers there was, well, it doesn't compile. That would seem to be the obvious one, like when you have var rune equals minus one, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't compile because that doesn't make any sense to have a, like a character that is negative. That doesn't make any sense. But if you were to think a little bit further and say, well, wouldn't that be like the easy answer? Like all those quizzes, none of them compile. Like that's the easy answer. As Francis says, you should write better code. Like don't write code like that. But if you were to ask the question a little bit deeper and say, well, if this code did compile, how would that propagate through? And that could potentially lead you to a different answer. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly, feature management for the modern enterprise, power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. I think the goal of these quizzes is to teach, is not to show just dark corners of the language that, you know, I did a stupid bug and that's it, or there is something really weird going on. But I think especially in Go, 
there's a lot of thought behind everything in the language. Um, so every time you see a weird behavior, there's usually a justification for that. And you need to dig out why is that for finding out. So That's precisely yeah. it. Yeah. So I always uh, say it doesn't compile. Maybe, but <laughs> probably there is a deeper reason for why it's showing this uh, quiz. So we can learn from it. Yeah, I think in the past I probably have put a few of those kind of like those answers that trick people because already you're kind of you, in the form you're kind of squeezing it into a tweet, so you're kind of mangling the syntax a little bit and like maybe collapsing something onto a few lines. And so to say, say, aha, the actual answer is it actually doesn't compile because I very trickily, instead of a space, I put that Unicode non-breaking space in there. Haha, I got you. Like, yeah, you're the smartest quiz asker. Like, no one got the right answer. Like, congratulations, but that wasn't very fair. Generally, I include that answer as like, it's one of the set of wrong answers. It's like, it would be unfair to ask to us that. And also like, what would someone learn from that? Other than here's how to write mangled source code that might fool somebody. Like, I think that defeats the purpose of as kind of like pop quizzes as a kind of an educational tool. Yeah. And to the reader, if we dismiss the easy, obvious ones of like, oh, that doesn't work or like that could never work. And once you dismiss that, you're left with the much more kind of more profound answer of all, well, if that does work. I didn't know that. Like, what else don't I know about yeah. this part of the language? The iterating over string ones, I think, is important because it's something that we do quite rarely. It's extremely common to use, you know, four ranging over byte slices or most slices. But we do also know that a string is a slice. And iterating over using four range over a string has some surprising properties, which because I think most people don't use very often would, again, like where things are surprising, those are where bugs lurk. When you iterate over a string, the index doesn't move by single increments every time. It moves to the start of each character encoded as UTF-8. So that can be one, can be two, can be three, can be up to four indexes into the string. I remember in the compiler, there wasn't a bug. It was a change I tried to make. And so I was like, ah, no, you've missed that. For exactly that case that there was a cast from a byte slice to a string. And I'm like, why are we doing that? That's wasteful. And the answer was, it was so that the code moved through the string at the start of each rune in the string rather than treating it as just like a bite size of Unicode data. So it's one of these things which come up very rarely. You kind of need to know them because it's, even though it's a, an unfamiliar part of Go, like for example, maybe breaking out of a loop to a label, like you have a loop inside a loop or a switch inside of a loop. You have to remember that break breaks to the innermost scope. So things like that, which are uncommon and are great examples for writing Quizzes are also important because occasionally you're going to come up against them uh, in code that someone else wrote. So what could be distilled into a teasing tweet can also be a bug that you're going to have to decode, debug in somebody else's code. Or your own. Or your own if you are being super smart, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think what uh, you mentioned about Unicode, which I found a really great source for quizzes, is both Unicodes and, and time and time zones, is that it's across languages. So every language has these things. So Following your quizzes, when I got uh, bored during COVID, I wrote uh, a Go quiz book and then a, a Python quiz book. And both of them, uh, the section about Unicode is, and time zones is roughly the same questions and the same answers. Because it's something you should know regardless. Yeah, and definitely if you're coming from another language, it's an area where languages do differ and they do innovate. Certainly for coming from Java, in Go, we just take as kind of a statement of fact all the source code is UTF-8. At our local Go meetup a couple of years ago, Rob Pike was in the audience and he reminded me when I said something like, I had a quiz that had an emoji and is this a valid identifier? 
you have to remember that. So, so like it, it was the frowny face emoji or the thinking face emoji. The answer is it's not an identifier because it's not a letter because Unicode says that that emoji is not a letter. Yeah. But what he reminded me was that I was like trying to make some example of like the bytes, you know, it's, it's three bytes. And he said, no, 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 no. Like, like your editor has let you type the frowny face in the source code because the source code is UTF-8. There's no kind of like interpreting it. It literally is UTF-8. And this is something which I think we kind of perhaps Go programmers take for granted or perhaps programmers using languages of kind of Go's pedigree take for granted because UTF-8 is the assumed. It's kind of like the default text format. We've gone away from code pages and all of those kind of like seven-bit ASCII things that we had in the 90s. So it's very easy to just think, well, all text is Unicode, except if you're in Java land, all the characters are two bytes long, the UTF-16 encoded. You have surrogate, pairs, and all of these other horrible hacks to work around the fact that the Unicode space is bigger than 16 bits. And so if you were used to doing text processing, certainly you grew up in kind of like the early 2000s text processing with XML in Java, you would be thinking all the time about the code page that you got the file in from because you would be getting some input from some horrible IBM 370 system using using EBCDIC. You'd be talking to a fixed exchange, probably using ASCII. You'd have all kinds of like escaping to somehow fit umlauts and graphs and things like that from the hybrid ASCII thing. And these are things which we don't kind of have to deal with. And maybe, Mickey, you can talk a little bit about like what it's like in the old world of Python, because I know this is something that Python yes. has worked really hard to, like in Python yeah. 2, there wasn't really a notion of all text is one encoding. Like encodings were kind of, and Ruby is the same way, encodings are kind of a property of the string. And so you can have strings with different encodings kind of flowing all through your program. And it's just something that we just kind of don't have to deal with in Go, but most programmers who are probably coming to Go now, I would say, if not a majority, like a certain large percentage of them come with experience and baggage and preconceptions from other languages. And so if, if anything, questions like the one I had about the minus one rune to kind of help you expose your preconceptions and say, well, I know, of course I know the answer is two because in Java, <laughs> every character is two bytes. And then you find out the answer isn't two and you have to ask did that hopefully prompts other questions of well, why isn't that like my education and my intuition tells me that it should be this. What am I missing? That's the kind of goal. Yeah, and I think we talked about preconceptions at the beginning. And this is sometimes when you start a new language, you bring your preconception from the language you're coming in. And then when I started with Go, I wrote a lot of Python in Go. And it worked and compiled, but it wasn't Go. So I think these quizzes also help you break these misconceptions or preconceptions and say, no, we do it differently here. You touched a, a little bit the point of, were you ever convinced that the solution that you think is right is not the right one? So uh, you, you shortly mentioned that the way you explained something was a kind of led you to a different way of thinking about this. But did somebody ever convince you actually that something else is the right answer? Oh, well, back in the early days of asking pop quizzes, either like I hadn't figured out the form or it was just easier to put to them in my blog. I generally had to like rewrite the quiz several times over the course of a bunch of hours. And there, there are cases now where if I get the form of a pop quiz wrong, I'll just delete it or delete it and post it again or something like that. So it's just definitely asking the question in an unambiguous way is tricky, mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to uh, illuminate an edge case. One of my favorite quizzes, which completely fails every time I try to give it is something along the lines of, 
it was in the form of like fix this program by adding only two characters or something like that. Yeah, for a while I tried to have a series of pop quizzes like what is the shortest way to write this to do a particular thing? And this was where knowing bizarre edge case properties of language, like the copy returns the number, you can use that to as a very quick way of doing the minimum of two or the maximum of two, two different values. And so that they were very tricky to get right because like very, very kind of tricky in prone code. The format of like this very simple, what this short program that fits in a tweet print and like the answers are already provided for you seems to work better because mm-hmm. it kind of constrains the constraints. And also it's kind of easier to verify as well. I remember the, always the do the shortest version of this for days, like people like Kevin Gillette would be sending me like, well, here's an actual shorter version and here's a shorter version after that and here's a shorter <laughs> version after that. So it's in some ways I think the point of moving past like the got it right or got it wrong to the thinking about the potentially yeah. the lesson behind it is occluded a little bit when you it becomes a competition, like write the shortest version. And I also mm-hmm. like the kind of poetry of like the ones that the quizzes that always start with the same form. What does this program print? Because I think like printing is the simplest thing. Like, like what's the first program that everyone writes in every language? It's hello world, like mm-hmm. hello, um, hello go, hello David. Like, like it's the, the smallest, simplest program you can write and all other programs are going to be bigger or complicated or more magnanimous after that. So I like the idea that the quiz space is just, it's just the tiniest portion of like, we're just talking about programs that print one value. What does this program print? Because the solution space of other programs is so much larger than that. Yeah, for me, several times I thought I knew the right answer for a quiz I showed to people. And as Linus says, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. So when you do a quiz for a lot of people, they will correct you. I remember one when I did about greedy regular expressions in a local Python group. And I did an explanation. And, and then someone who has a long history of regular expression, Perl, raised their hand and said, no, no, <laughs> let me give you an counterexample for what you're saying. I think the fun part is... Even when you're teaching or even when you're showing these things, you might learn something as well. Even though you think you know what you're doing, it's not necessarily right. Absolutely. And to go back to the kind of inspiration of the Josh Block's Jet Java Puzzlers book, as I said before, the bit that I enjoyed the most about that was not the competition of like how many out of 50 points did I get right on the first try. It was the, let me explain to you why you might have got this wrong. Like the explanation part was the far more vague. It's the bit that I miss from... When I would give, I have this broken Go present slide deck that has been re-edited and re-edited so many times because every time I'll go to a meetup, I'd like delete some of the old ones, add some new ones, like maybe trim it for time, been through so many iterations. The thing about Go present is that you have to give every slide a title. And so there would be a slide with the quiz. And then I would always copy the title and put in brackets continued. And so my favorite part was always the second slide, which is the, not just the answer, but the explanation for why, why it is like. The one that was always my favorite was there's a bunch of, this is around identifiers. We all know that identifiers have to start with whatever Unicode defines as letter or the underscore, which includes a lot of pre-emoji characters. In Japanese, they're called kaomoji or K-A-O, kaomoji, which is like kind of typing faces. If everyone knows the flipping table meme, it's that class of thing, like the frowny eyes. It turns out the frowny eyes is a valid identifier because the kind of O with a dot in the middle and a kind of little eyebrow is a character called Thar, which I think is Greek or Turkish. And so that's a letter. So you can totally have an identifier, which is this kind of frowny side eyes. But like the that explanation, like explaining, even though it's not just kind of Roman or Cyrillic alphanumerics, but also a great, when we say a letter, this includes all of the written languages. 
Hebrew, Turkish, Japanese, like these are all letters. Not all of them will be uppercase letters, but they will all be letters. And so you can write identifiers in your Go code in your native tongue. And also just kind of also highlight that you're not restricted to speaking about source code only in English. I really like that explanation part of of explaining why the frowny face is totally valid. You can have a variable called frowny side eyes. Mm. Pop question, pop quizzes as job interviews. Good idea or a bad idea? Terrible idea, yeah. very unfair. Yes. Job interviews are not fun and pop quizzes are supposed to be fun. So do not mix the two. Yeah, I have quite, quite often people will comment, you know, like if I got this in a job interview, like I would have failed or something like that. Yeah, no, it's unfair for two reasons. One, the form, if you would just guess, you have a one in four chance, like that's terrible. But also there's terrible power imbalance and there's already, like in the interview situation, the power imbalances are already terribly off the scale. But there's this, this terrible power imbalance that as the asker, you know the answer, you wrote the question, you probably wrote the, especially in the kind of tweet-sized pop quiz form, they're written a way to either confuse or perhaps obfuscate a little bit. And none of those things are fair terrible tool and also the most important bit is like if these are some pop quizzes some some kind of like do this multiple choice as part of your kind of interview pack do this multiple choice set of questions where's the learning in that it's simply like can you solve these quick number puzzles quickly there's no that the value of the pop quizzes is the the educational component that comes after that of saying well i got the wrong answer and now i'm confused by that like why is that like like I mean, yesterday, a number of people were saying, well, how can you have a, a negative one letter? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so that was an opportunity to explain, well, it turns out that Rune is actually an alias. And aliases are not the horrible alias keyword we added a few versions ago, but this idea of a type has another name. And this is a thing which also comes up quite infrequently in Go because we know that, like, int64 and int are the same type mostly under the hood, but they're not transposable. If you have an int64, you have to cast it to an int. But when you have a rune and an int32, they can transparently be, because they're actually aliases, it's the same for byte and UTF and byte and uint8. So that was an opportunity to explain a thing about like the rune characters, that the rune type is probably something that not a lot of people have come up with, especially like if you're parsing network data, you're getting it in bytes. It's not strictly ASCII, but you can kind of most of the time ignore that and just kind of treat it like ASCII so byte will work, but actually strings are runes. Um, so it was an opportunity to uh, explain that a little bit. So yeah, to, to summarize, yes, pop quiz is a terrible tool for interviewing, like that's just unfair. And also like it's, you're missing the most important bit, which is the, the opportunity to say, oh, well, I got that wrong. Why? To ask that, that question, why? What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Teleport. With Teleport Access Plane, you can quickly access any computing resource anywhere. Engineers and security teams can unify access to SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications, and databases across all environments. Teleport is open core, which you can use for free, and it's supported by their cloud-hosted version, which lets you forget about configuring, updating, or managing Teleport. The Teleport team does all that for you. Your team can focus on your projects and spend less time worrying about infrastructure access. 
Try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to GoTeleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, GoTeleport.com. I agree with you. I think it's a bad thing to do in interviews, mostly because I don't think as an interview you learn something valuable about the candidate when they face that. Either they know it or they don't. Usually you have then enough time to go over the internet and read the spec and see what's going on, maybe play with the code. They don't have it during the interview situation. So either they know it or not, and, and that's basically maybe their memory, but nothing more than that. And it's also, as you mentioned, very stressful. Like, I have no idea what it is. Why is that? So they're forced to invent something, which I personally don't like. And completely artificial to the entire way that you would work and perform yeah. your job, to not get too far in attention about hiring. Like one of my favorite things is to watch machinist videos on YouTube, people using lathes and, and drills and things like that to make things. And I'm sure if you were interviewing for a job as a machinist, you wouldn't sit down and have a long discussion about material science. You'd tuck some bar stock up in the lathe and you would turn the part as described. And then people would say, well, yeah. Did you do a reasonable job at that? Were you fast with wastage, things like that? So that does, on surface, sound a little bit like doing whiteboard coding, like you're doing the thing you'd be doing, but the key is you're doing it in the environment. You're not talking about, I would remember to set the speed on the machine to X and Y. So I think the pop quiz format taken out is just like, here's a tiny piece of text and four answers, circle one of them is so artificial. Of course, if you got the answer wrong, the first thing you'd do, copy that text, put it in your editor, run it change it, explore it, pull it apart, which is the key to learning to like dissect something. So I agree a lot. It's stressful and artificial and unfair. So I would like to turn the situation a little bit and ask, you are all in the position of interviewers, you're all position of interviewees. If you as an interviewer get a pop quiz question at the end from an interviewee at the part that you ask, do you have a question for me? Is that okay? I think so, yes, because for me, it's less stressful and it yeah. might show them the depth of the knowledge of the team or the people they are going to interact with. And maybe, you know, they just want to get close on a social level. So for me, it's fine. I would bite. As a fun social thing. I would view it as, it's almost like they have some obscure knowledge that they want to share and like the pop quiz is like a fun format of sharing it. So to me, it would show that they were excited and they want to share something they, they learned. So like, that's a good thing. And it's not like they're saying like, oh, you're, you're going to get fired if you don't know this. Like, it's not that stress. Whereas like somebody who's interviewing, even if you just ask it as like, oh, a fun little intro, here's a pop quiz. It's still like a stressful scenario for them. And they're going to go home thinking, oh, I got that wrong. They're never going to hire me now. Like, it's a completely different environment there. Mm -hmm. I have a lot more questions, but we're slowly running out of time. <laughs> One last question, and then will be the fun part of an unpopular opinion. So... We talked about pop quizzes as part of an interview process. Maybe yes, if you are on the interviewee side. Pop quizzes as part of learning a language. And syllabus of a course or just for you to do uh, when you freely take a language to learn yeah. upon you. Do you teach that? Do you like learning with that? I'm for it. I'm doing several ways of teaching people. And every time at the end, giving them something to think about, which is related to the subject, is usually something that strengthens their understanding and makes them better learning. So I think it's a good idea to have some kind of a question at the end that see if you got it or not. And I think quizzes are a great match because apart from related to the subject, they're also fun and they also encourage you to explore more. So yeah, for sure. 
I think part of it is, is definitely the atmosphere of it. Like, I don't know, like if it was like a learning materials and you had to get the quiz 100% before you could move on, that would probably frustrate me. Like it would make it a less enjoyable experience. Because like Dave, you even mentioned you'll have quizzes and you'll have like does not compile as an answer. And there are times where I click that just thinking my first intuition is this doesn't compile, but I want to learn something from this. But like if you have a quiz where it's like a barrier to moving on, it doesn't feel like you're having fun and learning. It feels like you're just kind of stuck behind this getting 100% on a quiz. Yeah, like the goal is never to like be the best to like get 20 out of 20 or something like that. It's about what you can learn. I think the quiz format, like it worked. I mean, it sounds like someone pining for the bygone past, but like when we used to be able to travel and go to meetups and things like that, it's a format that works really, I think works better than kind of like Twitter clicking, clicking buttons. It works really well in the collegiate setting in a meetup group because like you can present the four answers. You can just say, let's, let's, we would always do it at our meetup, like give a show of hands and who thinks A, who thinks B, who thinks C. And then you can ask if there's like a standout or like if there's a lot of people who are choosing a particular option, just pick someone and say, why do you think that? Like explain it. And then they give their answer and you could pick someone from a, who had an opposing view and you have a dialogue before you even be like, ha ha, like the answer is actually C. And let me just explain to you the answer. Like, like it's a really good format for having a discussion and a dialogue, which is like the, like that's the best kind of learning. Like rather than just rote learning, of like memorize these answers, it is show you working, show me your thought process, which is definitely to tie it back to your earlier question, you know, like the style of interviewing, I think is more successful. At Hepio, we would, we did the thing where we asked the candidate to go and do an exercise and bring it back. But like, it wasn't just like, give us your code, look at it. If it's above some kind of artificial bar, which we won't tell you about, then you, you progress. It was like the next step was that you got on a phone, a phone call with someone, someone who worked at the company, and you would just talk about the code. Just like, show me working, show me how you approach this problem, why you chose to do it this way or that. Or like, tell me, walk me through your design. Interviews are artificial, but I think a lot closer to the kind of discourse that you would have between coworkers on a team. Like, let's talk about how you want to do this. Let's talk about the trade-offs. Talk about like some of the limitations of, of that approach. Like, like oh, that's the kind of discussion you would have building or maintaining a service on a team. Interviews are artificial, but perhaps close to the real one. And also it's a discussion between two people about the code rather than simply what you wrote was good enough, move on to the next question kind of thing. Yeah, so many questions, but we should be wrapping up. Um, I would say it's time for an unpopular opinion, but I guess we already have one that we all agree on, so we can just uh, <laughs> call it a day. <laughs> Maybe, after all, yes, uh, an unpopular opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. So who wants to start with unpopular opinions? I can start. All right, Mickey. So my unpopular opinion is that you should never use a technology that is less than seven years old. <laughs> okay. Is this based on your experience when starting Go earlier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, of course, I started Go at the very beginning. So, yeah, I don't listen to my own advices, of course, but I've been burned so many times by the new and shiny things. And seven years, it's usually production seven years will make your life uh, so much easier. I worked at a company that my boss said my goal in life is never to be paged at uh, 4 a.m. So he built everything on files in all technologies. And he was right. We never got a pager. It was just working. So I'm trying to follow this opinion. <laughs> this is Dan McKinley's innovation tokens. Yes, exactly. 
if you're someone out there in radio land who doesn't know what I'm talking about, you need to Google uh, Dan McKinley, choose boring technology and turn to and really take this idea of innovation tokens and really take it to heart because really seriously, you get three. You get three innovation tokens per project. And if you spend them all up front, you have none left. So as I've got more mature in this industry, yeah, like the idea of using the latest shiny thing has gone from being kind of like, this is exciting to being, this is concerning. <laughs> so we became old geezers. That's what you're saying. Yep. Which is fine <laughs> because there should be people to replace us. Um, yes. This was something I was super passionate about every year when we would be choosing the speakers for GoForCon. Like if it's just the same old heads on stage, that's not a community. That's not growth. That is stagnation. Like, like you should be actively looking for new voices and new people who are hungry, who are going to push their, their new ideas into the scene because otherwise that's just stagnation. This is teetering dangerously into unpopular opinion territory, but I encourage the audience to cast their eye around to other language communities and ask the question, who are they full of the same popular established old heads coming up with great new ideas, of course, but from the same people or are they actively seeking to replace and rejuvenate with new speakers and new ideas, new points of view, new perspectives. That's why you have kids. So when you say to you something, it's seven years old, are you referring to like the technology itself is seven years old or like, can you, I guess, elaborate a bit? Like, cause like when, when you talk about innovation tokens, obviously if you take a language that you've never used, that's 17 years old, that's probably not yeah. going to help you in that front. Well, you know, I'm teaching Python still. And Python is 30 years old now. So I'm teaching people who are younger than the language, and they still think it's new and cool. So, But there is something about a product that has been in production for many years that people ironed all the bugs. They found out there is enough community and knowledge around it. So you can go and find answers to your questions. You can read tutorials. And it takes time. It takes time to build this volume of things to do. So I think it's around seven years, maybe sometimes more. Almost all of the things that we think of as kind of overnight successes, generally they spend about 10 years in the wilderness before it. Twitter is an example of that. Most of the popular services that we think and use in products spent yeah. decades as either going down the wrong track or just kind of waiting for that spark to happen. Programming languages, technologies, tools, websites, all of these computers the history of that we're all sitting in front of Macintoshes. Would you really be sitting in front of a Mac in the nineties? Like they were on the, the road to oblivion, but what? <laughs> yeah, it was in 2001, the, the company, which is now the largest, I think they're worth more than certain countries, um, had to be bailed up by Microsoft with a loan to avoid going broke. Most of the things you, you see as successful have a long period of struggle and toil to build that foundation that makes them seem so successful. Yeah. There's a formula for maturity that Martin Wiener posted, which says that maturity is blood plus sweat divided by complexity. And all this blood and sweat takes time. This is something you need to know. I think about that in terms of the Go compiler itself. In 2012, 2013, each new version of Go, we were working on Juju at Canonical. Juju was just large enough that it had been written by enough people with enough different coding styles. We basically had one of every different version of kind of the way you could do a thing and go inside there somewhere. And we would regularly turn up compiler bugs, runtime bugs, things like that, like horrible, like show-stopping escape analysis bugs. 
But over time, those things stopped happening. And it, it wasn't just the compiler got better. It absolutely did. But the experience of all of those bugs that happened to everybody in the formative years of Go was actually codified in the actual source tree. If you look in Go, Go tests, there are some 30,000 different test cases each one of them, and they're named after the issue that they were logged in and they represent a bug found in real code in the wild and fixed and now that test case lives there to make sure that bug can't ever come back every kind of weird crash someone had to debug and be like this can't possibly be my program and actually turned out was a bug in the runtime or the language or the compiler or something like that that experience got codified and turned into a test case which runs literally every single try bot run every commit to make that quality bar just a little bit higher every time. Yeah. John, do you have an unpopular opinion for us? Not today, I don't think. I'm sure I have plenty, but none that I've thought about long enough to want to talk <laughs> about it on air. I'm still thinking over the uh, seven years technology one because like, I, it's not that I disagree with it. It's just I don't know how you fix that problem in the sense that there's a lot of people new to programming who instantly want to dive into everything that's new because that's what they read about. I think it's easy to go to people who are experienced and be like, okay, you need to like choose which tech you're using that's new. But for somebody who's new to everything, it's kind of like, why not just learn all the new stuff? And it's like, Dave, your test cases example is a great one of like, you know, these things get better over time. And do you really want to be the one who's finding the bugs while trying to figure out how it works versus, you know, figuring out how it works first and then moving forward? There's a tension here because... If everyone sits on the fence and waits seven years for somebody else to be the first one, no one can make any progress. And, and to go back to, to dumping on old faces at, at, at conference talks, like if you only choose the people who are successful, yeah, you kind of bake in like a bunch of safety there, but your kind of community atrophies through ideas. I think about how certainly in Australia, Go came into a lot of, uh, a lot of companies and it was a combination of a very specific like – one example, there was, there was a Ruby shop that the log processing job took more than a day, so it could never keep up with itself. Pinpoint case for go in, write a different log processor in a different language. Other examples, when I was working at Lassin, people weren't, I didn't have a lot of oversight, and so I chose to write the piece of infrastructure code that I was working on in Go rather than in Java, because people, no one was looking over my shoulder. So we got lucky there. It's that tension between sticking with the tried and true and kind of waiting for somebody else to take the first move and the realization that like you have to try new juniors and new solutions. The only kind of like 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 kind of shrug emoji thing I can say is, well, that's engineering. That's about weighing trade-offs and risks and making sure that you don't paint yourself so terribly into a corner that you have no budget for risk at all left. If you spend all your budget up front, you can't take any more risks for the rest of the project. Like you have no safety margin at all. That's a terrible place to be working from. Like to go way back to the discussion of people being like afraid to break computers because they made a syntax error. Like if you arrive in a place where you can't like any one mistake, no matter how big or small, kills your project because you have no more budget for risk. You painted yourself into a corner. It's very difficult to recover from that situation. I like to say that this is the trade-off for the people that make the decisions in the business. Bringing in new technology brings in new opportunities, brings in new opportunities to hire people, new opportunities for new technologies to solve problems in different ways, new technologies that a lot of the reason that systems in the back end of GitHub are written in Go is for concurrency. Like there are things which fit much better the ability to use concurrency than that kind of single process request response model that other, that other languages have. Different horses, different use cases for different technologies. The trade-off there for kind of like the engineering manager or the VP of engineering is something is to 
be saying how do you like if we have one of everything in our technology stack and i'm sure people have worked at places with that where they do have one of every technology in their stack how do we staff all these teams how do we cross skill across all these teams we need someone who knows haskell and javascript and closure and ruby and go and python and c++ like that becomes that kind of impossible unicorn like maybe someone has passing knowledge of of all those technologies but they need to kind of be an expert in all those technologies so for example, what I've seen at some companies that they'll say, we have three or four or five languages, and that kind of gives them a continuum to say, here are the established languages, here are the ones that are coming up, and perhaps here are some of the ones that we don't use anymore. I know that famously Google was Java, C++, and Python. I don't believe they use Python anymore. And so by having a set of technologies in your stack, you get to have a discussion about their maturity level. Or are they in the kind of, are they used for new work? Are they used for existing projects? Are they kind of, they're the workhorses, but we're not starting new things in them. I think that's one way to manage the risk and manage the maturity of technologies. I think the problem is that uh, people a lot of time overestimate the benefits and underestimate the risks or the downside of new technology. Absolutely. All right, Natalie. So my unpopular opinion is a lot less exciting, unfortunately. It's also about interviews and it's that you should write some of your social media on your CV. And while I do see sometimes people uh, many times write their LinkedIn and GitHub, I feel that in tech, it kind of makes sense to also include your Twitter, for example, if you have one where you anyway rant about tech or share things like that. Some Twitter handles, of course, don't make sense, but I kind of think that it belongs enough in the stack of a, at least of a, of a techie. Yeah, I think it makes sense, but in a way, sometimes it's hard to separate. So for me, there was a clear separation between Facebook for social and Twitter for uh, geek stuff. Mm-hmm. And in last years, I got a lot of tech in Facebook and a lot of uh, social in Twitter. So I don't think I have a problem showing what's going on there and people can see that. I think a lot of people are afraid of that for some reason. I don't know why. It's like interesting in the sense that once you get popular enough, it's almost like you don't even have to share it because if they just Google your name, they'll probably find it. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's obviously the people who have a random racist Facebook or Twitter account or something, then they probably shouldn't be sharing it. That's probably not going to help them. I mean, maybe it would help the rest of us hiring people, but they probably shouldn't do it anyway. Yes, obviously. But (laughs) yeah. Yeah, well, sounds like the unpopular opinion is a little bit unpopular, so that's good. I'm always trying to to tick that box. I guess I'm just not sure. Like, I guess I wonder how it would be for people who just choose not to do those social things, if there'd be some like negative side effect for them who, for whatever reason, decide... Like, I don't use Facebook pretty much ever. Mm-hmm. I have one, but I don't remember the last time I've logged in, and I basically stopped using it because I found that it, I didn't get on Facebook and walk away happier in any way, like having an enriched life. So I was like, this isn't worth doing. And even like Twitter at times, I'm very limited in what I do with it because I find if I'm on Twitter too much, it just doesn't make me feel like my day is any better. There's just too many crappy people out there. So I guess it's just kind of a mixed bag for me. Yeah. Is there anything else we should say for this episode? Solve more quizzes. Be curious all the time. And take the idea and change it and make it your own. The opportunity to share like 
to share something that you learned or share something that was surprising to you. As I said, a, a lot of the quizzes come from like reading the spec and finding obscure things in there, which is really just like a rote quiz. But quite a number of them come from seeing a bug and it's like a bug. And I'm kind of making my hands like, like I once caught a fish this big, kind of large. And the challenge there is like, for me, is it possible to find the, the core, the guts of the guts of this misunderstanding in a thing that will fit as a properly formatted Go program in the tweet? That's kind of the, the challenge for me. But like, those are the constraints that I set for myself to like, can I ask the question in the form of a tweet? There are no rules here. Like the goal is to share, like share, I learned this surprising thing. Is anybody else surprised by it? And also, and it's surprising because... I didn't know that you could write, you could have emoji identifiers, or I didn't know the opportunity to like share. Does everyone know Julia Evans? Designs. Julia Evans makes make zines. Yeah. Yeah. Her chosen form of communicating. This is like if she's learning about epol or learning about like some arcane or you know not particularly her ability to take a very weird or, or obscure piece of some part of her job and not just turn it into a question but turn it into like craft as a magazine like a 90s zine thing that's her way of sharing sharing that and that's like so my suggestion was like like if you like the idea behind the quizzes it's not just like here's a question you know i'm keeping my own score of how well i'm doing on these over the year but if you actually engage with the idea of them as a vehicle to teach and share something that you learned or certainly something was surprising or unexpected to you like like Take the idea and do it exactly as I do, if you want. Or take the idea and do it completely differently. Again, nothing is off the table here. Turn them into books, turn them into conference talks, give them at your meetups, like, like write them, send them as letters to um, communications of the ACM. Like the opportunity there to teach and to educate about something that was new and surprising and that you appreciated learning is, that's the goal there. It's not about what are the rules for writing a perfect pop quiz. Big, thank you. Thank you. For participating on such a short notice and creating so much content that it almost feels like it was a podcast of just two interesting quiz creators. I enjoyed listening a lot. <laughs> we'll put these unpopular opinions to the test on Twitter. Follow GoTime FM and let your opinion be heard when we take the poll. And of course, if you dig the show, spread the love and let other gophers or even Go Curious folks, know about GoTime. We do appreciate it. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, John and Chris are joined by Peter Berjan and Tim Heckman to discuss Go's controversial V2 Plus problem. We'll have that episode ready for you next week.